Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and welcome. Wonderful to be in your company this afternoon. It is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Great to be back in the, the seat after a week away and uh, wonderful to be able to share some thoughts with you in the build-up to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. We're uh, in the throes of the days of Slichot, of Slichas, where we're asking God for forgiveness, where we are coming forward and mentioning all our misdemeanors, the things that we want to have uh, forgiveness for, the things that we want rectification for. And, of course, we've got to remember the cheshbon anefesh. We need to actually make a fair accounting. It can't only be all the debits. We've got to bring forward the credits as well. We've got to think of the things that we have done that are good, that are positive, and uh, bring those to the fore as well. It's all part of what we call slichas, slichot, which broadly means saying you're sorry, apologies. Yes, if anybody ever told you that love means never having to say you're sorry, think again. Don't try that in your relationship. Don't try that in your uh, friendships. Don't try that in your workplace. Love means having to say you're sorry. It means having to say it properly. It means having to accept the apology. And it means having to build on it and move on. That is what true love between ourselves and God Almighty actually is. And we revisit that all at this time of the year, in the month of Elul. And then, of course, Rosh Hashanah, the Aseris Yemei Tshuva, the 10 days of repentance that that brings in, and then Yom Kippur, the culmination of it all, um, in a few weeks' time when we fast and when we really, really get that um, clean slate that we had been hoping for. And not only the clean slate, but all the blessings, all the wonderful brachas for uh, the time ahead. So let's give you a little bit of a rundown of what's going to be happening over the next while, because it is all important stuff, of course. This coming Shabbat is called Shabbat Nitzavim, named after the Parsha, the Parsha of Nitzavim, um, of um, uh, one of the penultimate or almost penultimate parshiot of the Torah is read, Nitzavim. It's sometimes coupled together with the next one, Vayelach, but this year it stands alone, Parsha Nitzavim, short Parsha of Torah, um, always read on the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah, and the Parsha uh, gives the Shabbos its name. The interesting thing about this parsha is we're told that it's within the beginning of that parsha that a real beautiful blessing is given to us. What's that blessing? Well, <coughs> on every Shabbos before, or on every Shabbat before a Rosh Chodesh, before a new month, we do what we call Birkat HaChodesh. We bless the new month. Yes, that's when... Uh, the person in shul announces what time the new moon will first be sighted over Yerushalayim and they give you all sorts of technical details and then the congregation stands and we ask God to give us a beautiful, beautiful life in this month that's ahead and we bless the month. We pronounce a blessing. We draw down spiritual energy from God Almighty in a bracha, in a blessing for the month that lies ahead. And we announce that the month of whatever it is, Adar, Shvat, Tevet, and so on, is going to be on a certain day. And may it be for us and for for all Israel as a time of great joy and simcha and blessing, goodness, kindness, wonderful things. We bless that month and we make that pronouncement. Now, no such pronouncement is made on this Shabbat, although it is the Shabbat before 
not only a Rosh Chodesh, but we would think kind of the Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Hashanah. It's the beginning of the whole year, and it's on, and it begins on uh, Aleph Tishrei, the first day of the month of Tishrei. We're blessing, or we should be blessing, this great, beautiful month that's ahead with all the Chagim. They're often termed to be the high festivals, but I'm not sure if we should use that terminology because high festivals means that some of them are not so high, and that certainly is not true. All our Chagim, all our festivals have their rightful place in the Jewish calendar. They are great festivals. But um, great in what they achieve and what they accomplish and what they stand for. And yes, of course, it is the beginning of a brand new year. We're going to change the year date on our calendars and we're going to move into the month of Tishrei. And yet that blessing is missing from our liturgy. It's missing from our prayers. We don't pronounce the month of Tishrei on Shabbat in Shul. And why not? Well, there are many, many different reasons that are given, but the primary one is that Hashem himself blesses that month. Hashem blesses the month that is almost as though it is too big, too important for us to think that we could bless the month, and Hashem does it. But there is an added uh, twist to that all, because we're told in the name of the Baal Shem Tov and others that the month of um, Tishrei is blessed by God, by something that he tells us in the parsha that we always read on that Shabbat. And that is, Atem nitzavim hayom kuchem. You all stand together today, like one man with one heart, whether you're hewers of wood or drawers of water, whether you're the heads of the tribes or just the mere mortals uh, beneath them. When we all stand together, when there's that unity, when there's that togetherness, that is the blessing. And that blessing not only is the bracha for this month, but it empowers us to bless all the other months of the year. So we're given the blessing in 12-fold, let's call it, on this coming Shabbat for the entire year as Hashem, through us, blesses the month ahead. And we've got to remember that we contain within us, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later on, but we contain within us a part of God. We call it our neshama, our soul. We've got a veritable, real, true part of God Almighty within us. We have that power. We have a power to bless. We have a power of godliness within us. And if we would only know um, just how powerful that actually is and how the strength of our souls is actually the strongest thing that we have at our disposal. It is something that is given to us. It's not only the power of our neshamas, but the powers to bless and the power to bring good energy into a place, into an environment. This is something that we have to do, that we're bequeathed, that we're given this uh, great and wonderful opportunity, especially on this coming Shabbat and in the days ahead as we come closer to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So that's the Shabbos, the Shabbos on which Hashem blesses the month on our behalf and empowers us to bless the entire year that lies ahead. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. We're talking about the Shabbos coming up, but then, of course, after Shabbos, we almost go headlong into Rosh Hashanah. There's just one day in between, and that's Sunday. And on Sunday, we have extra long slichas. There is uh, extra long prayer service that is held in the morning with those slichot prayers um, for some time in the morning. And then after our Shacharit, we do what is called Hatarat Nadarim, Hataras Nadarim. 
um, where we gather together with a group of people um, sitting as a Beth Din, and we um, ask for exoneration from any vows that we may have uttered inadvertently, that we may not have kept up to, and so on. And all those things are then um, exonerated by this tribunal uh, before whom we appear um, on Sunday morning. Um, many people spend Sunday, if they can, visiting um, uh, the, the graves of tzaddikim, righteous people, or uh, parents and so on, in order to prepare for Rosh Hashanah and ask them to intercede on our behalf. And then we go into Rosh Hashanah proper. Now, Rosh Hashanah begins, of course, Sunday night. It's all day Monday, Monday night, and all day Tuesday. <laughs> and the first night of Rosh Hashanah, we eat apples dipped in honey. In fact, there are many who have the tradition to dip the challah in honey as well. So it's not the idea that the honey has to be brand new when we are dipping the apple in it. We can dip the challah in the honey as well, but we dip an apple in the honey at the beginning of our meal and we make a bracha on the apple, dip it in honey and we say, Yehi ratzon, may it be God's will, shana tova umetuka. We ask God that he should grant us a good and a sweet year. Now, why must it be good and sweet? Well, what is the difference, perhaps, we should say, between being good and sweet? Well, we know that everything that Hashem does, He does for the good. Everything that we have happen in our world is good. Yeah, even load shedding. There are all sorts of things that we can't really see why they're good, but we know that in Hashem's world, everything that Hashem created, He created for the good. We're taught this by Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva told us, Everything that God causes to happen, he causes to happen for the good. We don't know what these things are protecting us from, what they're keeping us from. We don't see the full picture. We can only see it through our limited vision. And therefore, we understand that everything that Hashem does is good. Unfortunately, it's not always that sweet. It's not always that easy to accept. It's not always filled with the sweet taste of honey um, like we have um, <coughs> on our apples or on our challah, on the Rosh Hashanah and thereafter. But the idea is that we say, God, we understand that you are in everything, and particularly when it comes to a fruit like an apple. You are within everything that you have created, and its value and its um, uh, physical and spiritual value is so important and so great, but it's all good. We dip it in honey and we say, please, God, in this coming year, it should not only be good, but it should also be sweet. We want goodness, but we also want it to be sweet. We want to be able to palpably, tangibly see the goodness and see the sweetness within everything. So that's first night Rosh Hashanah where we eat apples and honey. We wish everybody on the first night of Rosh Hashanah and we wish people sh we, that they should have a ketiva tova. We wish everybody that they should be written in the good books and we say Lashana tova. May you be written and may you be inscribed and sealed in the good books. That's only done first night of Rosh Hashanah. Thereafter, it could be regarded as a bit of an insult. We want to make sure that people have or we understand that people have already been written in those good books for the coming year. We don't want to insult them by saying, I know you haven't yet. Please, God, you will be. So we only do it on the first night of Rosh Hashanah. Thereafter, the greeting to everybody is a simple good yom tif. Shana Tova, you can still say um, thereafter, but let's not talk about after the first night the idea of being written and sealed and inscribed and so on. 
We spend a large portion of the day um, of Rosh Hashanah, both days, in prayer. We daven, we pray, and most of the davening uh, prayer is centered around the theme of God being the king, the idea of the king, coronation of the king. <coughs> and yes, of course, living up to what we um, saw, read about, and followed, or many followed during this last couple of weeks, the idea of a new king in England, the idea of the coronation of a king couldn't have been more opportune, couldn't have been better timing than having that all come together with um, this month of Elul, the idea of kingship, the idea of the king, the idea of the coronation, the idea of the brand new appointment of the king, and uh, even though he's been around for some time, but that appointment gives him a renewed power, a renewed energy, and it's pretty much what we hope and pray for on Rosh Hashanah from God Almighty that he should um, be recrowned as our king, that we reaccept him as our king, and that he grants a new year that is filled with uh, beautiful and wonderful things. And again, as we said, palpable and sweet and good and positive. That's what we hope and pray for. So. There are many, many different foodstuffs that we have on Rosh Hashanah, uh, which we're not going to go into at the moment. But the main point of Rosh Hashanah, besides our prayers and so on, is the hearing of the shofar. It's not important to blow the shofar. It's important to hear it. We need to hear the sounds of the shofar. We need to hear it live. It cannot be done on a recording. It can't be done via the Internet. It needs to be a live hearing of the shofar. So you need to get to a shofar blowing um, taking place at a shul near you or uh, people who cannot get to shul. We offer the service, of course, through Chabad of being of uh, going to blow shofar for people who cannot get to shul, who are invalid or uh, unable to move or uh, not well and so on. Um, we will certainly accommodate and try and help as far as possible uh, with that as well. So. The idea is that you need to hear the shofar. You need to hear a minimum of 30 blasts of the shofar on the first day. And importantly, people must not forget that you've got to hear it on the second day as well. And it is obligatory for men and for women. Let's not use any uh, little loopholes to get out of that. Everybody should be hearing the shofar, preferable if even the children can hear it. Everybody should be able to hear the shofar. On Rosh Hashanah first day, on Rosh Hashanah second day, that's both Monday and Tuesday. The mitzvah of the day, the main mitzvah of the day, is the hearing of the sounds of the shofar. Let's not undervalue it in any way. It's powerful. It's a cry from the heart. It's a call out to God. It's the announcement of Hashem being our king, and it's a reminder to God of just exactly who we are and how we still regard God Almighty as the one who can discern, who can tell, like a mother listening to the cry of a child, can tell when the child needs to eat, can tell when the child is hungry, can tell when the child um, needs an epi change. So uh, God can tell exactly from our cries who we are and what we are and what we're saying. Hashem, our Father, recognizes it and will undoubtedly grant us the beautiful and wonderful year that we hope and pray for. But while we're talking about the king, let's think about the idea of the king doing walkabout, or as we've mentioned before, the idea from the Alter Rebbe, Rav Ashni Azaman of Liadi, whose birthday was last week, who told us that this is a time when the king is in the field. The idea of the king being in the field has now given rise to many, many different uh, songs and uh, paraphrases of it and people talk about the king in the field, the king in the field and so on without perhaps really thinking about what it's all about. I'd like to share with you a very beautiful story that I came across 
which I think has relevance, A, to what's been going on in the world during the last couple of weeks, as well as what's going on in our world in the build-up to Rosh Hashanah. It's a story about a young man by the name of Beryl Gardner. Well, this is certainly the way that the story was written in the in the version that I read it, a, a man called Beryl Gardner. He was a child of the kinder transport. Now, everybody knows, I hope, what the kinder transport was, where... Uh, uh, tens, hundreds of Jewish children were uh, uh, saved from the clutches of the Nazis uh, just before the uh, Second World War and um, taken many of them to orphanages in and around London, England, um, where their lives literally were saved. They were snatched from the countries of uh, Latvia and Lithuania and Czechoslovakia, uh, Romania, Hungary and so on, and brought out... Um, saying goodbye to their parents, saying goodbye to their families, uh, probably not realizing that they would never see them again. The families probably certainly did, but this was a way of saving the children and many, many hundreds of lives and therefore hundreds of families were saved in this incredible way. It was known as the kinder transport, the transport of the children. This uh, young Beryl Gardner, who was 11 years old at the time, was um, in an orphanage somewhere um, in England, somewhere in, I believe, not far from London, and um, there the child was absolutely, totally inconsolable. Um, there was nothing that anybody could do to cheer him up. He was distraught. The kid didn't stop crying. He was uncooperative. He wouldn't do anything. He sat and moped and cried and was depressed and was upset all the time. Um, uh, where here at his young age of 11 years old, he had been scurried away, realizing, of course, that his life had been saved, but realizing, too, that he had left behind his entire family, including his dear parents. Well, what happened then was something quite amazing, and that was there was an announcement that King George VI, Queen Elizabeth's father, was going to be uh, visiting that neighborhood. He was going to be traveling in his cavalcade, in his entourage, in his motorcade. He was going to be passing by, quite nearby where this orphanage was stationed. And uh, this child, Beryl Gardner, suddenly changed. He was hatching a plan. He was thinking about something. But all of a sudden, his demeanor changed. His attitude changed. He helped to prepare. The children were told that they were going to be standing outside. They were going to be dressed in their finest. And they were going to be able to wave to the king. And they were going to be able to stand behind the police barricades and watch the king's cavalcade. It was going to be a historic moment for them to be able to see King George. They were going to be able to stand there and witness this all with their very own eyes. <coughs> I guess the kids were making placards. I guess they were making banners. They were told to dress in their finest and to turn up on the day uh, together with the other children from the orphanage. And Beryl was a completely different child. He was going to see the king. The king was coming to town. He was going to see the king. But nobody knew what, he actually, what actually was going on in that 11-year-old mind because sure enough, the kids were filed out. They were taken to stand along the street and uh, the king's cavalcade, the motorcade, came down the road with all the pomp and ceremony and fanfare, of course, that one would imagine accompanying a king. And all of a sudden, Beryl darted out from the crowd. He struggled free of everybody. He jumped a fence or jumped under a fence that was placed there to protect the uh, road and, and, and make sure that people stood behind the police barricade. And within a flash, he had run and jumped onto the king's car. 
the transport for the king, he had jumped onto it. And within seconds, he was grabbed by a whole lot of bodyguards, policemen, who jumped on him, grabbed him, pulled him back. And of course, the next thing, they were going to take him off to a reformatory, never mind an orphanage. They were going to take him and uh, do with him what you would imagine somebody who threatens the life of the king um, has to have done to them. So he was taken away, and as he was being carried off, the king turned around, happened to see a commotion, and asked the people with him, asked the bodyguards, what was going on. And they said, there's a child ranting and raving that he wants to speak to the king. He's jumped at the car, and we've had to take him away. It's been a threat to the life of the king, perhaps. They don't know what this kid was up to, what he was thinking. Maybe the child is deranged. And amazingly, King George stopped the cavalcade, and he said, I want to speak to him. And they brought the child before the king, and the king asked him what was bothering him, what's on his mind. And he said, I want you to take to, to ensure that my parents get out of Europe. That's my request. And the king said to him, listen, you know, it's wartime. The Nazis are marching on Europe. It's, um, they're in a place that we can't get to. It was a miracle that uh, the children of the kinder transport managed to get out. But there's no way that I think that I can do anything. And this Beryl looked at the king and he said, but you're the king. And the king can do anything. You have to help me. And you have to do it. And the king found out who he was and said he would be in touch. And of course, Beryl was not expecting anything to happen from that, except that he did expect that he was going to be in a whole lot of trouble. He expected to be punished severely when he got back to the orphanage, but nothing happened. Nothing happened to him at all. A number of weeks later, weeks, months perhaps went by, and one day he was called in. He was called in by the heads of the orphanage, and he thought that this was the time and the place where he was really going to get a hiding. He was going to be in real big trouble. And when they called him in, they sat him down, and they said to him, the king remembered you, and the king has sent you a gift. And if you go to that door and you open that door, you'll see the gift that the king has sent you. And the kid walked over to the door, and he opened the door, and there were his parents. King George VI had managed to find and get his parents, Beryl Gardner's parents, out of Eastern Europe. He had saved them too. And because of this, because of this, Beryl was reunited with his parents. And others, other children, wrote afterwards that they wished that they would have done something like this. They never did it. They never took the opportunity. And so when we're told that the king is in the field, and we're told that the king is on walkabout, and he's around and he's about and he's waiting for us to present to him, let's not have the chutzpah, perhaps, to have to run at his car, but we certainly have to take the opportunity to come before the king, share with him, tell him what's on our minds, tell him what we've done wrong, ask him for forgiveness, and ask him once again to give us the goodness and kindness that he, this benevolent, kind, and giving, loving king, God Almighty, can and will do for us now and in the future. So please, God, we should all take advantage of the king being in the field, just like Beryl Gardner did. We'll be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. We've been talking about the advent of Rosh Hashanah, the build-up to Rosh Hashanah, and the fact that uh, the days are few. There are only five days left, counting today, uh, between now and the Rosh Hashanah. So we look forward to spending those days wisely, making sure that we utilize the opportunity of the king still being in the field, of the opportunity 
of being able to do everything that we're supposed to do in this month of Elul, which is to improve upon our relationship with the Almighty, improve upon our relationship with our fellow men, and improve upon our relationship with ourself, tshuva, tefillah, and staka, the three catalysts or the three main words of this period of time that we need to focus on, we need to try and better and rectify and make sure that we're in good standing come Rosh Hashanah as we stand together as we stand together triumphantly and be able to proclaim on Rosh Hashanah that at the time of the Yom Adin, the time of our trial which is coming up that we are standing triumphant both um, from our demeanor as well as from the accolades that we are bringing to the fore and the things that we have done in order to make sure that we ourselves are confident that Hashem will have not only no choice but no real other option and uh, certainly no other thing on his mind other than to grant us the best, most wonderful, beautiful, healthy and happy year. So we've got to get ourselves right, we've got to get our relationships right and we've got to make sure that our relationship with God Almighty is right as well. That's part of the program of now, of slichus, of uh, repentance, of asking God for forgiveness, of spending time in contemplation, of spending time doing extra mitzvahs, whether they are mitzvahs between ourselves and God, or even the smaller things, the mitzvahs that we would see as being smaller between man and man, making sure that we do acts of goodness, acts of kindness, so that we become absolutely indispensable um, in uh, every which way for everybody and for everything in this wonderful world that we're privileged to be able to occupy. So that's um, the time that is ahead of us, and let's use it well, and let's think about it well, and let's make sure that we're in good standing and we're standing in good stead for the coming year for Rosh Hashanah um, when it comes about. Sunday night, Monday, Monday night and Tuesday. We look forward to a great, great time of Rosh Hashanah. But we'll be back with you right after this just to sum up. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So as we go into these last few days before Rosh Hashanah, perhaps we should be thinking about something that crops up time and time again in our uh, liturgy, um, whether it's in the Slichot, whether it's on Yom Kippur, whether it's in the Aseris Yom Tshuva, we keep on saying, we keep on referring to our apologies to God in the plural. In the plural, we keep on talking about the fact that we have sinned, the sins that we have committed, the things that we have done. It seems to be, perhaps, that we're not taking personal responsibility. Surely we should be saying that I have done, I committed this, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, and so on. Surely it shouldn't only be uh, um, phrased in the plural. It seems like a lack of responsibility. Well, there are many, many beautiful interpretations, but not the least of which is the fact that in, when we think about everything that happens to us and everything that we do and everything that comes about in our lives, as we mentioned right at the beginning of this session, um, is uh, something that comes from God. God gave us the evil inclination. God gave us a Yetzirah. God gave us the ability to sin. God is therefore partially responsible. Perhaps what we're saying when we say, Ashamnu bagadnu, perhaps when we're saying all of these things, perhaps what we're actually saying is, I have sinned, but God, you have sinned also, in a way. It sounds chutzpahdik, but in fact, we're including God in that. We have sinned. 
God, you and me, we have sinned. It's not a question of not accepting responsibility. It's an understanding that even my sin actually came from God, that everything negative actually comes from God. And we want to try and blow that away. We want to try and rectify that. We want to try and apologize for it. And we want to try and make sure that we are in good standing and in good stead. And that when comes comes Rosh Hashanah, that everything is fixed and rectified and that God accepts our apology, not only on our behalf, but in fact on his as well. So we're going to end off today with the traditional sounding of the shofar, um, which I'm going to do here now. And remember that you're not fulfilling the mitzvah of hearing the shofar by hearing shofar during the month of Elul at all, whether you hear it live or whether you hear it here um, on air. But here goes, let's listen to the sounds of the shofar. you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead, and a Shana Tova Umetuka, a happy, healthy, and sweet year. Look forward to seeing you again soon on another exciting episode of Judaism 101.9.